Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. When you start your 30-day trial, your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use cloud accounting software. FreshBooks gives you more time to do what you love by making the tedious accounting tasks easy, quick, and painless. FreshBooks is offering a free 30-day trial for Oppo listeners. Just go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash OPPO and enter oppo. From Canada land, this is oppo. I'm Justin Ling in Toronto and I'm waiting for the writ to drop like I'm at a Skrillex concert. That's a that's a funny joke the kids will like, right? Today, in our first of our rotating celebrity guest host chair is Fatima Syed, investigative reporter for the National Observer. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. On this week's show, we're giving you a rundown of the interminable pre-campaign as all of the leaders get set to hit the actual campaign trail in a matter of days. And then I'll be breaking down the demographics of each of the party's candidates so far. How many women they have, how many black people. How many white people, a bunch. And finally, we're talking about Canada's forgotten province, Manitoba. Wait, where's Manitoba? It's east. North? I don't... Yeah, it's one of them. As this episode comes out, Manitobans are going to the polls and are expected to deliver Conservative Premier Brian Pallister a second mandate. Their election has grappled with an unusual campaign issue, the emerging drug crisis, especially methamphetamines. Wait, who's Brian Pallister? The Premier of Alberta. I mean, Manitoba. (laughs) I don't even know anymore. Justin, is the election here yet? No, it is not. At the time of our taping, there's still no election call. Rumors have been flying fast that Trudeau would draw up the writs of an election. See, that's the actual thing you're supposed to say. It's not a writ drop. It's a writ drawing. That's up. not more easy to say. At no, all. it's it's very stupid. It looks like the prime minister is waiting until the last possible moment, which is September 15th, to kick things off. That happens to be my birthday. Happy birthday, Justin. It's going to be the worst gift I've ever gotten. So in the meantime, what's been happening? Well, some of the biggest, most confusing news of the week came from New Brunswick, where 14 former provincial NDP candidates decided to up and leave for the Green Party. Blame was on Jagmeet Singh, who hasn't visited the province since becoming leader, and still hasn't nominated any candidates there. One now former member of the NDP's federal executive even acknowledged that race and Singh's turban may play a role in why the party's having trouble finding people to run. Potential candidates seem worried the electorate won't vote for a brown man. Ooh, that's racist. But then, after all of that, five of the 14 candidates turned around and said they weren't switching sides after all, and this whole thing was done without their consent. Did you have opposition fighting on your bingo card? It's actually the only thing I had on my bingo card, so bingo. Meanwhile, the Liberals continued their oppo campaign against Andrew Scheer with a video of him laying out his plan for a private and homeschool tax credit. Up to $4,000 for independent schools tuition. It didn't have quite the same oomph as previous videos, given that the tax credit was actually a specific conservative policy. That is, until Scheer quietly walked away from it just a couple of weeks ago. So, eh, either way. 
And on the West Coast, a federal court of appeal has opened the door for six challenges to go through against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The pipeline approval had been challenged by Indigenous groups and environmentalists since the beginning. But now the court will hear a whole new round of legal arguments around a failure to adequately consult First Nations. So this means the court case will not go into whether the Trans Mountain should be built. It will only decide whether they have to go back to the negotiating table again. I feel like climate change is going to hit Canada way before this court settlement is going to appear in front of our eyes. Oh, the whole country will be on fire and we'll still have ongoing court challenges. Or under the sea. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the Prime Minister has finally given us a firm answer about which debates he'll be attending and which ones, more importantly, he won't be. If you'll recall, the Liberals passed new legislation in the last couple of years regulating how debates are managed in this country. They were honestly looking to get all the big broadcasters together to put on just two debates, one in English, one in French. But some of those rogue outlets like McLean City TV and the Monk School wouldn't play ball and decided to plan their own debates. Justin Trudeau, seemingly skittish about spending too much time defending his record, has declined the two private English language debates. You can cue the chicken noises there. Justin, I'm a very serious reporter. I don't make chicken noises. No? All right, well, fine. The Prime Minister has, however, accepted an invitation to do Teveya's Fast a Fast debate, which puts all the leaders up against each other one-on-one, and it's honestly my favorite, which means he'll be doing two French-language debates and only one English one. Chicken. In other news, the Prime Minister also sat down with Hassan Minaj, the host of Netflix's Patriot Act, to talk about Quebec's secularism bill, pipelines, and the Saudi arms deal. What's going on with this secularism bill? What, what does this mean? Um... I disagree with it. Uh, a, a government should... Finish this sentence. Mm-hmm. Canada will not sell any more weapons to Saudi Arabia, period. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I missed that one. Canada will not sell any more weapons to Saudi Arabia, please. That's a, that's a, that's a good statement. I'll note that this has been the only English language sit down the Prime Minister has done in months. And it was with an American TV show. Of course it is. The video already has 1.2 million hits. And if you missed it, uh, Hassan Minaj compared Andrew Shear to the doll from The Conjuring. I have never seen The Conjuring, but I can immediately conjure up an image of what that looks like. Please spam Justin with photos. <laughs> and Canada's Human Rights Tribunal ordered the federal government to pay potentially billions of dollars in compensation to First Nations children who were taken into care. The tribunal said Ottawa willfully and recklessly discriminated against Indigenous children living on reserves because they knowingly underfunded child welfare services. Finally, the Prime Minister tried to march in the Labor Day parade in Hamilton and... It didn't go super duper well. So, Fatima, I gave you a bit of homework before you came on to co-host the show with me. Well, this was voluntary homework that yeah. I gave for myself. I mean, you're calling me a celebrity guest host. I needed to give, bring my A game. Celebrities have to do their own homework. Now, you and I have been talking about the current slate of candidates who have been either selected by the party leader or actually chosen in a real democratic race. Yeah, but we wanted to figure out how the demographics of these candidates are in each party and how they break down by race and gender. Okay, so, so why put together these numbers? Because it matters who is running if we want a representative parliament. It's right. as simple as that. That's if the we whole don't point have, of it. If we don't have a diverse range of candidates running, we're not going to have a representative parliament. That's it. Yeah. And this is the whole point behind first past the post and small ridings. You're supposed to have MPs reflecting 
their their writings and if they're diverse you're supposed to have diverse MPs. Yeah, and we've heard so many complaints about how how can a white candidate represent this community that is basically 80% black for example. Yeah. And to correct that, we need to look at who's running, where they're running and so forth. Okay, so let's let's start at the very beginning. I mean, how did you go about this? This isn't exactly something that all the parties publicize themselves. So let me set the scene. It's me on my couch with five tabs open. Yeah, nothing nothing is sexier than the work of an investigative journalist. The beginning of a horror movie. So many tabs open. <laughs> so I went through all the candidates on all five major party, political parties' websites, uh, broke them down through male, female, visibly not white, white, and took any notes on interesting candidates that stood out. Um, the main ones that I was looking for were like how many black candidates they are because we don't talk about that enough. Um, if there were like an, a hugely big number of Asian candidates, for example, which is the case for one of them. Um, so that's how I went about it. This isn't super easy to do, right? It involves a fair bit of kind of looking at the faces of each individual candidate, whether or not they're wearing a turban or a hijab. Um, sometimes you can look through the biographies of these you know, these candidates and it'll tell you that, say, for example, they, they were a, a grand chief for, for their nation. Um, but a lot of the times, you know, there's, there's no image of the person. There's a name there, but there's no biography. There's no link to a Twitter page or a Facebook page. There's no background. So this is, this is you know, not a science. Yeah, do not take my word for this at all this is just uh, this is Fatma science this is me on my couch again um, I like that Fatima science and it's also not an exact science because not all the parties have assigned candidates for all the writings and some of them have assigned candidates but they don't have a bio or a picture so it's really just me doing the best I can with the information in front of me yeah, several of these parties haven't even nominated their whole slate of candidates yet. The NDP are slowly getting there, but they're still a good hundred candidates away from having a full slate. Although, fun fact, the conservatives have a person in every single writing. Finally, good job, conservatives. <laughs> they're leading the way. All right, so hit me with it. Which party is the most dude heavy? The People's Party of Canada. Oh, God, I'm so, uh, so so surprised. I mean, nothing says, like, you know, having a real voice of women around the table, like bullying a 16-year-old uh, Swedish girl who's uh, campaigning for climate justice. <laughs> True, but it's actually a real problem because the People's Party of Canada is over 83% male. Uh, only 46 of the candidates they've assigned so far are female. Okay, that, that's pretty bad. I mean, how are the other parties doing? How are the real parties doing? So the conservatives are split almost 70-30 uh, male to female, which is okay. Um, great. The liberals are almost 60-40 male-female. Not amazing considering, you know, gender balance cabinet Trudeau, but... For a party that promotes gender equity so much, we might have expected a little better. Or 60-40 in the other direction. The NDP is almost at gender parity, but the NDP has not assigned enough candidates. Out of all the parties, they have assigned the least amount of candidates across Canada. Currently, 51% of their party is female, 48% is male. Oh, God. Misandry all over again. More women than men. This is... Uh, I, but, oh, yeah, it is It is worth noting that, you know, only slightly over half of the NDP candidates are actually selected. And what tends to happen when you panic and you need to just put names in writing, you just pick a bunch of white dudes and just dump them in. And eh, that's kind of how you end up. We'll with... have to see. Um, and for the Green Party, which is the only political party to be run by a female... Um, 60% of their party is male. I'm surprised by that. I mean, you know, actually, the Greens are kind of banking on women voters, uh, you know, lining up behind them. Women tend to be more concerned about climate change. Not really, you know, advancing your cause to have still a 60-40 split male-female. Yeah, I'm actually surprised by the Greens' uh, parody makeup. I'm eh. not going to lie. Well, okay. Who's the whitest of all the parties? Uh, who do you think is the whitest of all the parties? Well, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say People's Party again, but that doesn't seem to be the case. 
Well, so I looked at what percentage of the parties was visibly not white and found that, interestingly, the NDP is leading in having a representative candidate base, which maybe we shouldn't be surprised by considering they're also led by the first racialized candidate for prime minister. And Jagmeet Singh specifically actually said that he wanted to bring in a more diverse slate of candidates. You know, obviously, in last week's show, we spoke to an old white union guy who seems to have been passed over for his party's nomination in Oshawa in favor of, you know, a racialized young younger woman. Um, so maybe this is actually evidence of that. Yeah. So 23% of the candidates they've assigned so far are visibly not white. At 23%, that's pretty close to the number of Canadians who are visibly not white, which is around 25%. And then, and again, these numbers are rough. Maybe there's some individuals who um, you know, identify as Métis or, or you know, who are uh, second generation immigrants who just, it's it's hard to count them as they're, they're still picking candidates. Hashtag Fatma science. It ain't exact. <laughs> Um, the liberals and conservatives are actually tied. 13% of both of their candidates are visibly not white. Uh, People's Party of Canada comes in next at 11% being visibly not, not white. Surprisingly, not bad. And the Green Party, again, a disappointment, uh, maybe to some, 7%. Visibly not white. Yeah, I went and double checked that one because it seemed low, but just a lot of old white folks and like old white folks. Their bios didn't have ages, Justin, so I can't oh, really comment uh, on that. You know, I'm, I'm just going to be ageist <laughs> here and say they looked old. And actually, so that 13% number is, it seems to be kind of a ceiling we've hit recently. Um, there's been uh, some studies uh, in, in the parliamentary review journal that have basically showed that the last time around, Overall, 14% of candidates were not white, and only uh, of those elected into the House of Commons, about 13% were not white. So that seems to be kind of a, a cap we've hit on, which is kind of disappointing, because again, it's it's fully you know 10 points away from the actual reflection of Canadian society, which is frustrating. It's very frustrating, and I think this is why this matters. You know, not all of these candidates are going to be elected. Uh, most of them are not going to be elected. But the more diversity we have in the options that are in front of us, the more chances that we're going to have that diversity represented on Parliament Hill. And to illustrate this, I want to talk about how many black candidates there are in each party because there are not enough black MPs a good point, in this yeah. country. Black Canadians are, are, are just very underprivileged in that They're respect. They're barely represented in our political system. So, um, to that point, the NDP surprisingly has 12 black candidates, which is amazing because they're Damn. well above everyone else. The liberals only have four. The conservatives only have one. The Greens have six and the People's Party of Canada has three. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. And it, this is not just numbers counting. You know, every single, I think, black candidate you have actually does lead to, you know, a policy change at, at the party level. It leads to more voices around the table who are advocating for policy positions that actually matter to, uh, you know, their the communities that represent and the people they know who are also of the black community or other racialized or religious minorities. And, you know, that actually leads to policies coming out and, and to uh, party positions reflecting the views of those communities. And Jugmeet Singh is a great example. I mean, he's actually talking about carding as a, as a federal nationalist issue, which is something you've never heard other candidates really talk about. Exactly. And I went to a town hall hosted by the National Canadian Council of Muslims uh, this week, and uh, Jagmeet Singh was their first host, and they're doing one with every leader. Um, and uh, he was asked about Bill 21 and Islamophobia and race, and the NCCM really wanted answers about what he was going to do as leader to talk about it. And one of the things he said that really stuck was that his very presence in the prime ministerial race 
was an act of defiance against Bill 21, which, if you think about it, is really powerful. And then when you look at the numbers in terms of the candidates they have designed so far, the NDP is actually doing a decent job with uh, diversity and with representation and with gender parity. Whether the final result looks the same when they've assigned all the candidates is to be seen, of course. Um, but it seems like he's going in the direction that he said he is. And that matters because, you know, there's only one hijab wearing Muslim across all five parties. And she's a liberal. And not everyone has Sikh candidates, visibly yeah. Sikh candidates who are turbans either. So these it, things it, it are important mean to talk something. about. It, it, it means does. something to have, you know, a candidate who would actually be impacted by the law talking about it. And actually, by and large, we've seen a pretty high degree of silence or indifference about Bill 21 from from the major party leaders. You know, the prime minister, including sitting down with Hassan Minhaj, um, said, you know, I don't like it. It's not. It's not who we are as a country. But he hasn't done anything about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, he has the. I mean, it's frustrating because in the last campaign, he said this is human rights issue. This goes beyond politics or, or partisanship or pandering. Um, you know, the three Ps. Uh, this is a matter of, of human rights, and we have to do something about that. And he hasn't done anything about that. So on the one hand, the more diversity you have, the more the topics around the table change, right. the more diverse the topics are that a government handles in, in its tenure. But also, if you think about it, there are so many studies that show that, you know, female candidates or candidates uh, of color have a less of a chance to win because of just the nature of their candidacies. Yeah. Like women are set up to fail in politics all the time. Yeah, they get stuck in writings they're never going to win. Exactly. And so if we don't do a better job choosing them before the election, then how do we expect a parliament that represents us? Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, this sort of number counting is is good to a degree, but it also doesn't reflect the degree to which those. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over three million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. And it's, you know, have a chance of winning in those writings. And, you know, I think there is some optimism that this time around parties have heard that criticism and are actually, um, you know, selecting, uh, you know, diverse uh, and marginalized candidates in a lot of these writings. And, 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 you know, there's some hope that actually they might get into the House of Commons, which I actually think will make a big difference. Fingers crossed. And to reiterate, so many of the candidates haven't been nominated yet, and we still have to wait and see what happens and what the final makeup is. There's still time to do better. Do better, parties. I also just want to say that it seems to me that because the entire conversation from the, the, the party critics we hear from the most or the ministers we hear from the most um, or the, the a lot of the pundits we hear from, the journals we hear from, seems to be still kind of begrudgingly too white. I think there's just basic things that just don't break through to the conversation or that people keep getting wrong. And the one most illustrative thing I can think of is Jagmeet Singh's name. The number of times I hear Jagmeet Singh on you know broadcast TV or from either other politicians or party leaders, it's maddening. I mean, this has been months now. He keeps correcting people. Like He go, keeps doing interviews saying it's 
Jug like hug, Jug meets sing. Uh, and people still get it wrong. And that just bugs the hell out of me. And I actually think it's really illustrative of, um, you know, a bunch of parties who talk a good game and then ultimately just can't even do the the bare minimum of getting one of the fucking leader's names right. Well, listen, I get it when people butcher my name, but Jugmeet's name is literally two syllables. And <laughs> they're both like English words that you say every day joined together. Yeah. So it's butcher my name hard. all you want, but Jugmeet is really easy to say. Or butcher nobody's name. Or, yeah. But there's few people's names as possible. Like, I'm expected to say Andrew Shear properly. <laughs> like, he can say Fatma Sayed properly. I'm just saying, as an example. I think we should just start messing up other leaders' names. Like, Andrew Shar. Andrew Shakir? Today's program is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. This week, I'm going to plug one of my favorite books. It's Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, written by Canadian historian Margaret Macmillan. The Audible audiobook is narrated by Suzanne Torin, and honestly, it's so worth the listen. This book is a must-listen for any history nerd, or really anyone who wants to know basic stuff about the world we live in. This book basically sets the scene of the Paris Peace Conference from 1919 right after World War I. You can trace back basically every modern conflict and geopolitical situation to this one meeting. There's all these fun little stories in there that kind of throw you for a loop, like the fact that Ho Chi Minh was working in the kitchen of one of the hotels where the conference took place and actually used that as an excuse to present a petition for Vietnamese independence to then-President Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson obviously ignored him, he joined the Communist Party, yada yada yada, Vietnam War. It's honestly so fascinating to get the historical underpinning of all of these modern conflicts. If you want to listen to Paris 1919, just go to audible.ca Canada. You can start your 30-day trial and get this book free. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Now, you've heard me talk about FreshBooks before, but I actually do use it and I find it really helpful. As a freelancer, if you're like me, you know how awful it is to not get paid on time or even worse, to not get paid at all. There's been a whole bunch of times in the past where I've had clients, where I've filed invoices, and then three months later, money's still not there. Well, FreshBooks actually makes a lot of that easier. It's much harder to screw stuff up if you're a Mr. Magoo-like figure like I am. It sends automatic reminders if you want it to. It can actually harass them for you, which I think is actually really helpful, and it makes me more productive. And again, most importantly, you get paid on time. There's nothing worse as a freelancer than not getting paid on time. So much of this is automated. You don't have to worry about all the little nuances of your invoice, or you don't have to worry about emailing Judy from account again. I've used a bunch of other services like FreshBooks, but they're not as good as FreshBooks. Now, if you want to try it as well, you can get a 30-day free trial. Just go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about a section. That's freshbooks.com slash OPPO and enter oppo. So you'd be forgiven for missing the news, but as this episode comes out, Manitoba is set to go to the polls to pick a new government. Or rather, probably to pick the same government again. At least that's what the polls say as of last week. 
Right now, Manitoba has a progressive conservative government under incumbent leader Brian Pallister. He knocked off a longtime NDP government and has become pretty popular over his four years in power. In this election, the NDP under leader Wab Canoe look like they're poised to pick up seats and narrow the gap with the government, but it doesn't look like it'll be enough to actually form government. We'll likely see Brian Pallister and the PCs romp to another majority government without much trouble. Which will also likely embolden the Conservative Premier's fight against the carbon tax. Oh, God, yeah. I love, love to fight the carbon tax. Provinces versus government. Uh, let's go. Well, there's one issue that caught my eye during this campaign that actually took me by surprise. And it wasn't something I was expecting to hear out of Manitoba. In the last uh, two years, we've seen a market increase in property crime to the point where I've had to... Uh, focus specifically on commercial Both clients. businesses link the thefts to fast cash for drugs. And in the middle of a meth crisis, anyone is a potential victim. They're all waiting for solutions to a problem they say keeps getting worse every week. That's right. Crystal meth usage and some of the crime that comes with it has pushed voters to demand real answers from their parties looking to form government. Obviously, we've talked a lot in this country about the opioid crisis, and we've really neglected the fact that Manitoba and some other places across the country are struggling with a meth epidemic. So I find this really instructive because this is not a Manitoba-specific problem, and it also is just one of the offshoots of a really integrated and powerful drug market in this country that has basically pushed cheap meth, cheap opioids, and cheap heroin onto various populations, and it's really impacting people's daily lives, not just those who are addicted and using, but also those who live nearby. So what's different about Manitoba? Well, it seems like a flood of just very cheap and affordable meth has basically made its way through Winnipeg and elsewhere, but I don't think it's a Manitoba-specific problem. I think they're just dealing with it more acutely. And I think it has put a bunch of pressure on the parties to actually kind of stand up and address this. And to their credit, they actually kind of have. Both the governing progressive conservatives and the NDP have specific planks in their platform committing themselves to actually trying to address the addictions issue. So who put the pressure on Manitoba and how do we get them to go national? Yeah, who got to you, Manitoba? (laughs) I mean, well, there's good and bad here. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, I I would make me very happy if both of these parties had a really thoughtful evidence-based plan to to fight addictions. Unfortunately, it's, it's not quite that pretty. Now, inside the progressive conservative platform, there's a pretty significant amount of policy points around the addiction crisis. Um, It's kind of between two camps. There's a whole bunch in there about policing and criminalization. Uh, They talk about fighting gangs and criminals and improving Crime Stoppers' ability to take in drug tips. Um, You know, they're talking about uh, more analytics and intelligence-based policing to go after traffickers and all that. You know, basically doubling down on all the shit that doesn't really work. We've seen an increase of interdictions and arrest around uh, drug trafficking and drug possession in the last couple of years eh, hasn't led to a decrease in actual usage. So good luck with that. But on the positive side, Brian Pallister and the PCs are actually talking a pretty big game about addictions, counseling, and, and mental health services, and exactly the sort of stuff you need to be talking about in terms of how you're dealing with uh, basically a drug crisis. There's stuff in there about doing better outreach and counseling for kids as young as grade three about the impacts of, of meth and other drugs. I think, and I'm maybe reading from the lines here a bit, but in a way that is thoughtful and productive and not just scaremongering meth is coming to kill your mom. 
bomb or whatever. That's how I remember all of the units on that when I was a kid. So it, it, it's, it's actually pretty good. Now, there's nothing in here about safe consumption sites. And generally speaking, Brian Pallister has fought against safe consumption sites. There is not a single safe consumption site or safe injection site in Manitoba right now. There's an open application for one in Winnipeg, but there's no telling whether or not it's going to go through. The NDP, on the other hand, are saying that they would open a safe consumption site if they win government. That's good. The rest of their platform on this is pretty weak. It's vague. It talks about evidence-based policy, but doesn't cite any evidence or actually call for what the evidence is pointing to. It'd be nice to have some fucking footnotes in this thing. Give us the footnotes. They would make a minister responsible for mental health and addictions, which is good. Beyond that, it's pretty vague overall. All this to say is that, you know, I I think it's actually kind of encouraging that this can uh, become a, a real issue in, in a provincial election campaign. Because I haven't been very encouraged by the degree to which the federal parties are talking about the opioid crisis in sort of, you know, grandiose or kind of big thinking ways. It tends to be a lot of piecemeal stuff. I actually got the chance to sit down with Health Minister Jeanette Petipa-Taylor a couple of months ago in Ottawa. The audio is a bit rough in this interview. We, we talked in the parliamentary cafeteria around lunchtime and it turns into a feeding frenzy. But but I, I talked to her. Uh, I talked to her about drug decriminalization. Obviously, her government has said no repeatedly. Um, but you know, she did highlight some of the harm reduction tactics her government has taken to combat specifically the opioid crisis, but drug addiction However, in general. When I speak to professionals in frontline, individuals on the ground, they're also telling me decriminalization is not gonna is not gonna save people when they're when the issue is really contaminated drugs. So we really have to look at the contaminated supply, and from there focus on that. My message to premiers like Mr. Ford is to make sure that they have to have a compassionate approach in dealing with individuals, uh, to have the tough on crime and to have, you know what I mean, the, the issue of, of criminalizing people uh, is not the approach. We've indicated that we want to have a collaborative approach and also a compassionate approach in dealing with these individuals. And I really plead with premiers of provinces and territories to make sure that they have that same approach. You know, I think it's interesting that the health minister is basically calling out premiers like Ford and Brian Pallister. You know, I'm giving him credit. Um, and he deserves some credit because he's done some 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 good advocacy, actually, as, as being kind of a pointy premier in some respects. Yeah, a month or so ago, he actually denounced Bill 21. He was the first provincial leader to actually denounce Quebec's Bill 21. And he urged all the other premiers to do it as well. That's great. Unfortunately, when it comes to some addiction and, and drug use things, He's still pretty behind. He's actually fought applications for safe consumption sites, which is mind-boggling for a, a province and a city that's in the middle of an addictions crisis, and especially a province that has seen new HIV transmission skyrocket, which is maddening. And and this is you know what I think is kind of encouraging about the fact that it has become a big issue uh, in the campaign is that I think it does put pressure on provinces to do more, and I hope that it uh, it mimics that on the federal level because. What the federal government has done thus far isn't nearly enough. Well, and and credit where credit's due. Shout out to all the media people in Manitoba who've really put this issue on the map. And let's hope that it spreads across the country because this is a problem. Yeah. And we still keep not dealing with it. 
And, you know, it does sort of bug me to some degree that safe consumption sites kind of have been billed as a panacea because they're not. This is where I think the federal government has been allowed to, to do an inadequate amount of action here and get away with it. It's that they kind of go, well, we did safe consumption sites. We did some opioid replacement therapies and yada, yada, yada. You're welcome. Um, the reality is we still have tens of thousands of people dying from opioid overdoses. We still have a meth you know, epidemic in, in Manitoba that is causing a huge spike in uh, petty crime uh, and, of course, it's HIV transmission, and in some cases, overdose deaths. Uh, and we're seeing lots of other negative uh, ramifications of the drug war across the country. But the federal government is is resisting calls to, to do more, to go into some areas that are sort of uncomfortable, like drug decriminalization, um, and to expand services that are working. Again, actually, another shout out to Manitoba. They actually have prioritized drug treatment courts or addictions courts, which has uh, tried to get people out of the criminal system uh, into a process where their you know, nonviolent offenses can be handled uh, through healthcare and counseling instead of by fines and parole and, and prison time. These drug treatment courts are, by all accounts, super effective. We've generally seen people who go through them don't go on to commit more crimes. But unfortunately, a very small number of people actually go to these courts. Only about 100 people a year actually go through them. Not even remotely enough to address the extent of this issue. In the bigger picture of things, this feels like another problem with federalism because it's like, if we want this issue to be addressed nationally, should it be up to provinces like Manitoba to do it on their own, as they seem to be doing right now, based on the rent that you just gave us? Or uh, do we expect the federal government to step in and do something as well? Well, I don't think it's a problem with federalism. I think it's a problem with how Trudeau is managing federalism. You know, he has the power to force the provinces uh, to get more on board with this. And it, cannabis legalization is a great example. He basically let the provinces uh, continue to criminalize more or less cannabis if they so chose. Um, and, and, and that is really worrying. You know, it, the federal government has sort of, you know, said these big grandiose and in some cases right um, policy uh, goals only to not actually get the provinces to enforce them, which I think is, is is sort of defeating the exact point of having a strong federal government. There's a lot more to be done here. And I think unless the parties are more willing to come out and really advocate for creative solutions and bigger solutions, we're still going to see the, the impacts of this. And, you know, these poor folks who are getting their cars broken into or uh, shit stolen from their construction yard are going to continue facing the impacts of a poorly managed drug crisis. And of course, the people who who are using these drugs are going to continue overdosing, dying, or contracting HIV, or otherwise being unsupported and and left adrift by by governments who just don't seem to want to take the steps necessary. And unless you're talking about drug decriminalization, you're not doing your fucking job. So basically what Justin is saying is that Manitobans should go vote and we should watch them and learn from them. But also, I think everybody should go vote for a party that has a thoughtful solution to this. But also everyone in the next federal election should be poking their MPs in the chest. I mean, in a very friendly, not aggressive or violent way and asking them what they're going to do about the, you know, the drug crisis, because this is something that impacts all of us either directly, indirectly or financially or from just a basic human fucking compassion point of view. I'd like to apologize to all Manitoba listeners who have rightfully called us out for forgetting your province altogether. You are, after all, the forgotten province. They're not, though. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm, I'm generally sorry. They're in sorry. the West. We know where they are. Yeah, that's right. We, 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 we consistently forget to mention you. And in some cases, we mentioned you and got stuff wrong. So we're very sorry. But you know what, Manitoba? If you want to get on the show more often, do a really good job of fighting the meth crisis. And we're happy to come back. That's all you got to do. Just solve the drug crisis and we'll talk about you all the time. <laughs> Thank you.
That's Oppo for this week. Fatima, thank you so much for joining me. This was fun. Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter, where everyone is, uh, at Fatima B. Syed, F-A-T-I-M-A-B-S-Y-E-D. And you are an investigative reporter at National Observer. So I am indeed. And keep... I'm covering my first federal election. That's so exciting. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Get in touch with us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast to let us know what you think. We are now weekly. So tune in next Tuesday. This episode of Oppo was produced by Laura Howells. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton from Canada Land of Media. And the theme music was by Nathan Burley. And I apparently have the last word of the week. That's and so exciting. that word is, drumroll please. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Poppycock. Oh. Which translates to complete nonsense in British English. That's a more thoughtful last word than we've ever had on the show, I think. It's what I think about politics around the world at the moment. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs>